We're going to only look at uh, a little bit this morning, but I'm going to read the whole chapter to begin. First Thessalonians chapter 3. It's about 90, 85, 90% of the way through your Bible. You have all the epistles of Paul from Romans to Philemon. And you've got a group there that start with T, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. We are in the one right after Colossians, First Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll read it for us to begin. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. At various points in your life, you may bump into another person with whom, for one reason or another, you develop a deep friendship. Your hearts will intertwine, and a connection may be made that is beyond other friendships. Our our culture kind of has watered that down. We call them best friends or BFFs. In the Bible, we have the example of Naomi and Ruth. They shared that kind of deep connection. It's possible there was something like that between Elijah and Elisha. Even Jesus had friends that were closer to him. We think about his special love for Lazarus and his sisters. But one of the most famous friendships in the Bible is the one between David and Jonathan. First Samuel 18 says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You guys, most of you know, Jonathan was the son of King Saul, and so he would have been in line to rule next, but God had rejected the line of Saul and had chosen David to be the next king. That, that could have been a source of great friction between these two young men, but it wasn't. There was, however, hatred and animosity from Saul, the king, who would not and could not accept that his line 
would not continue. He was jealous of David's success, jealous of David's popularity. And the question for Jonathan and David was, how deranged is this man's hatred? And so, as most of you know, they decided to find out. And so for two consecutive nights, David skips out on dinner with the king. He was living in the king's palace. He would play music for the king. He skips out on dinner. And Jonathan says to his father, I gave David permission. He, he left town. And upon hearing this, Saul becomes enraged. He pledges to kill David, and he almost kills his own son that evening. The next morning, Jonathan goes out secretly to let David know about his father's intentions, and that means David would have to leave Jerusalem. With no one else around, they gave each other a final tearful embrace and had to say goodbye. An image like that might help you get a better picture of what had happened between Paul and the Thessalonian church. God had intertwined their hearts. You read the letter, we've been saying a, there's a distinct love that Paul had for this church. There's an affection there. And he wishes he could have stayed longer, but because of the persecution from the Jewish authorities, Paul was forced to leave this church that he so dearly loved. This morning, we're just gonna look at verses one through five of chapter three. And in doing so, we'll get a little more insight into the events surrounding Paul's departure. And to organize our time, I've divided it into three sections. If you don't like to take notes, you can listen. If you like to take notes, there's a lot today in terms of structure. It's up to you. So maybe you love it, maybe you won't. But that's okay. You can decide how much of that. But we're going to have three major headings. First, we're going to look at the timeline and understanding what's happening historically. Then we'll look at the traveler. And then we'll end by looking at the tribulation or the trouble. So there's the timeline, the traveler, and the trouble, those would be our main headings. We'll jump right in to the timeline. This is more, a little bit of background as we get into our passage. Let's understand some of the chronology of what had happened. And I'm gonna move pretty quick. We'll have eight points on this timeline just to understand what's going on. What is it we know based on the rest of the Bible and in this passage, what was happening with Paul and his team and their relationship with Thessalonica? I think last week I pointed you to Acts, or a couple weeks ago, Acts 17, and that told us there that Paul's visit to Thessalonica was part of his second missionary journey. And so if we make this little timeline to understand where we are, the first item on the list could simply be the group arrives in Thessalonica. The group arrives. That group is Paul, Silas, and then Timothy, whom they had picked up along the way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy show up in Thessalonica. Acts 17 says he preaches in the synagogue for three weeks. The majority of the Jews reject the message. He goes out to preach to the Gentiles. We don't know how long Paul stayed in Thessalonica. It wasn't very long, though. But in that short time, he develops a deep affection for this church. But that affection would turn to anguish because Paul is then forced to leave. There were threats being made on Paul's life. And he flees west about 40 miles to Berea. And actually, the whole group goes with him. So the second step on our timeline is the group leaves to Berea. So the group arrives at Thessalonica, and then the group leaves to Berea. The whole team goes. When they get to Berea, they find that unlike in Thessalonica, the Jews in Berea respond positively to the message of Jesus Christ. They embrace it. They're studying the scriptures with him. 
But the Jews in Thessalonica found out that Paul had gone to Berea, and they send a group to go do the same that that happened in Thessalonica. They go stir up the crowds against him, and that leads once again to a separation between Paul and his church. Paul has to flee. He ends up fleeing south to Athens, and this time, he goes alone. Silas and, and Timothy stayed in Berea. So number three on our time list would be Paul leaves to Athens. So they all arrive in Thessalonica. They all jump over to Berea. That'd be west. And then Paul alone goes south to Athens. Once he's in Athens, Acts 17 says, he was very troubled by what he saw. This is the heart of Greek culture. He sees all the idols, which he knows behind those false gods, there are demons And there he is, you can imagine the situation. He's by himself, he's isolated from his team. There's a a loneliness with him. There's an uh, um, indignation at all the idolatry he's seeing. And then there's added to that the grief of having been separated from two churches that he had grown to love and serve. In the grace of God and to Paul's relief, we come to step four of the timeline. Timothy and Silas later arrive in Athens. So now you've got the whole group together. This will be, that's step four in the timeline. Timothy and Silas arrive in Athens. So they catch up to Paul down south in Athens. But that reunion wouldn't last very long. This brings us to our passage in chapter three, verse one. It says there, Paul says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. The first word there is therefore, and that's an overflow of chapter two where he's describing his joy, his affection for the church. He loves the church. Because of his love, he needs to find out what happened. This was a baby church. They, they, were, they were just starting, and then Paul had to leave. What happened to them? And so Paul and Silas agree to send Timothy back, and, and Timothy would have agreed to that as well. That would now be step five on the timeline. Timothy from Athens returns to Thessalonica, he's gonna go north now. If you have a map in your Bible on your own time, you can look at that and kind of see where these cities are in modern day Greece. Timothy returns to Thessalonica, that's step five. Timothy is probably the youngest of the men, so he could have traveled the fastest. He could return sooner with the update. He might have been the logical choice, but that doesn't mean it was an easy decision. Again, look at Paul's description. He says, it's almost as if he didn't want to separate the team. They just came back together again. He says, but we, we, when we could bear it no longer, we decided to send Timothy. And he says, we were left behind alone. So not an easy decision for Paul, but it was one he thought was necessary. Timothy leaves to Thessalonica, and then step six on the timeline is Silas leaves to Macedonia. We know this because of what's stated in Acts chapter 18. It's not stated explicitly there, but the implication is that he returned, so we assume that he left and Paul would be left alone. Acts 18 alludes to that, and it tells us what happened next. After Paul is left alone in Athens, step seven on the timeline, Paul continues to Corinth. So Paul leaves alone to Corinth. He goes from Athens to Corinth, and it's there in Corinth that we finally come to step eight of the timeline, which is Silas and Timothy join Paul in Corinth. So everyone's you can just trying to get a picture of where everyone's traveling, but in the end, they end up in Corinth, and it's there in the city of Corinth where Paul spent at least a year and a half. He hears a report from Timothy about the church in Thessalonica. He would have heard a report from Silas maybe about the church in Philippi or the church in Berea. And that update is what leads Paul to write this letter. We'll get hear a little more about that update next week as we continue. But, but just to, to understand, Paul is in the city of Corinth writing this letter to 
the Thessalonians. That's the fast history. That's the timeline, okay? There's no test on it, but if it interests you, it just lets you know the background. Now, from the timeline, let's talk about the traveler. Who is it that was actually going to be sent? We already mentioned that. That was Timothy. Timothy was a younger companion of Paul, but here in this passage, we find two types of descriptions. First, there's a description of his credentials, and secondly, there's a job description. So who was Timothy, and why did he leave? What was his mission? What was his goal? We'll start with his credentials. Here's a description of, that Paul gives of Timothy. Verse two, he says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ. That shouldn't sound too uh, distinct. The first one is very familiar to us. We're, we're familiar. Christians are brothers. That, that term is a recognition that we are part of the same family. God has, in the mercy of Christ, forgiven us, adopted us, brought us to himself, and through the sacrifice of Christ, we're reunited with the Father. So that would have been normal. More significant, though, is the second description. Paul uses the word co-worker in other parts of the Bible, but there's a distinct way he uses it here because he says Timothy is the co-worker of God. He doesn't say my co-worker. He says God's co-worker. Some people didn't like that. There are translations in the Bible that say servant of God because it seems maybe the translators just didn't know that that must not be the right word. It doesn't make sense. Who's God's coworker? It's almost as if you're a peer, but obviously that's not what Paul means. What Paul is getting at is the recognition that this is ultimately not Paul's missionary journey. It's God's missionary journey. This is God's mission, and Paul and Timothy are on God's team. There's also a way here that Paul is um, commending Timothy as his representative. Paul was the apostle planting churches. Timothy is his apostolic representative, and he would be doing God's work to proclaim and defend and uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's who Timothy is. He's a brother, and he's God's coworker in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why is he going to Thessalonica? What's, what's the mission? What's the job description? What are his objectives? Look again at the end of verse two. It says, we, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Those aren't exactly synonyms, but they overlap a lot. Same basic idea. And then verse three says that no one be moved by these afflictions. If you jump down to verse five for a second, you see that Paul repeats his heart. He repeats a little bit about the purpose for sending Timothy. He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. So you put these elements together and you come out with three main goals for Timothy's journey. The first goal is what we get in verse five. It's the overarching goal. His goal is investigation. I sent to learn about your faith. Timothy was charged to come back to Paul with an update. His trip was a form of evaluating the church. This would be like a typical physical at the doctors. They go in, they check your eyes, they check your ears, they check your height, they check your weight. Maybe they do some lab work and they see, is there a problem here? Is there anything we need to address? How are things going? Is there any concerns? That was Paul's job. I'm sorry, Timothy's job. He was going to investigate. So investigation is goal number one. Goal number two is exhortation. So he was gonna investigate in the church and then he was going to exhort. That's what the end of verse two says. And again, those are two words that have an overlapping idea. He went 
to establish and to exhort the church in the faith. And how would he do that? What is the instrument Timothy would have used to edify and support and strengthen the church? He would use the word of God. He does that with the truth. That's the instrument of our sanctification. Jesus said that. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Hopefully we know that. Your spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity are going to come through by the spirit of God. That it comes through the word of God. This is God's instrument for your sanctification. We, we proclaim it to each other. We hear it. We teach it. This is how the elders used to use the language of Ephesians 4. This is, how, this is what elders use to equip the saints. And this is what the saints use as they build one another up in the body of Christ. And the root of it is the gospel. The message of Christianity is the message of Jesus Christ. God came to earth. The word became flesh. And we, as sinful people, though we deserve eternal punishment can be forgiven by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who bore in himself the sin of man. If you will trust in his perfect life, if you'll trust in his sacrificial death, if you'll trust in his glorious resurrection, you will be saved. That's the message of Jesus. You'll be forgiven, you'll be cleansed, and then by his spirit, God will begin a transformation in your life. And part of the transformation is I want to keep learning about the message of Christ, and I want to keep obeying. That's the Great Commission. Go baptizing them and teaching them, not just what I said, but teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the path of a disciple. And the process by which that happens is the word of God. When you're young in the faith, you need to be established in the faith, you have to learn. When you're weak in your faith, when you're tempted, when you're distracted, when you're lazy in your faith, when you're tired in the faith, what you need is to be exhorted. And that was Timothy's job. He went for investigation and he went for exhortation. Lastly, this is connected to his exhortation, Timothy also went for protection. Protection, or you could even say uh, prevention. This is what you see in the opening lines of verse three. Here's the purpose. He came to exhort so that, verse three, no one would be moved by these afflictions. So it's not just investigation or evaluation. It's not just um, exhortation. Timothy knows that his Time with this church is going to keep people from falling away from the faith. And the word Paul uses there, he says, I don't want anyone to be moved, literally means to be shaken or um, agitated. I think about when you're a little kid, you get some bugs and you throw them in a jar and then you shake it to see if they fight. Well, that happens in your faith. Your faith gets shaken for a variety of reasons. It could be a sickness. It could be the temptations and the allures of the world. It could be you lose your job. It could be a variety of things that shake your faith. There are things that will hinder your spiritual progress and move you away from focusing on Christ. And in those times, the temptation is, I'm done. I'm just gonna quit. I'm just gonna give in to the world, just be like everybody else. Timothy went to prevent that from happening. He went to protect this new baby church from falling away from Christ. And in the case of the Thessalonians, there was a particular reason why they might fall away. And this leads us to the final heading for today. We saw the timeline. 
We learned about Timothy, the traveler. Now we'll talk about the trouble. The trouble, right? In the middle of verse three, after saying Paul's purpose, uh, uh, Timothy's purpose, that no one be moved, he says they shouldn't be moved by what? By these afflictions. That word in the Greek points to pressure. It's talking about a type of distress or anguish. And Paul's not talking generically. You know, we all have problems in life. He's talking about something specific to this church. And we've already talked about it in chapters one and chapter two. Uh, Back in chapter one, verse six, Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord because you received the word in much affliction. And then later in chapter two, verse 14, Paul says that you, the Thessalonians, have suffered from your own countrymen, which would be the Greeks. You've suffered from them the same thing that the church in Jerusalem suffered from the Jews. This church then is experiencing some severe form of persecution. There would have been threats on people's lives. Some people may have lost their jobs. Some people would have been uh, kicked out, ostracized from their family. There was an active movement to suppress and to silence the people of God and to hinder their gospel ministry. Paul had seen that firsthand all throughout his missionary journeys. He saw it firsthand in the city of Thessalonica. That's why he left. But he knew even after he leaves the city, persecution's gonna stay. It's not going to stop. And you see evidence of that knowledge in verse three, because look what he says to the church. I don't want anyone to be moved by these afflictions. Then he says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. How many, whether it's Instagram or whatever else, Instagram preachers are gonna say destined for this, and the next line is gonna be affliction and pain. He continues in verse four. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we, collectively, were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. In other words, this is not some freak accident. This is not something that that randomly happened. Suffering, affliction, is part of God's design for his people. To use the wording of verse three, the people of God are destined for affliction. And that shouldn't surprise us by now. That message is repeated over and over by Jesus to his disciples and by the apostles in the New Testament. All who desire to be godly will be persecuted. Persecution should never come to us as a surprise. What am I doing wrong? We should say, like the disciples, rejoice in the Lord because we're worthy to suffer for his name. In 1 Peter 4.12 One of the more famous verses along this line says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Affliction, persecution is part of God's design for his people. Paul knew that theologically and he had taught it practically ahead of time to the Thessalonians. That's why he points them to that in verse four. I told you this was going to happen. Persecution is part of the way that God confirms his people and it's part of the way that the church grows. You see that 
You see evidence of that in Acts, especially with the death of Stephen. There's persecution there in Jerusalem. The Christians flee because of persecution, and as a result of them fleeing, the gospel spreads. And we see similar evidence in church history. One church father from the second century wrote a treatise to the Romans in the Roman Empire, and he said this, the more often we are killed, the more in number we grow. The Christian blood you spill is like the seed you sow. Paul understood that. And he wanted the Thessalonians to have that same heart of knowing the name of Christ is more important than our own life even. Paul accepted suffering as part of God's plan. But that didn't mean he was passive. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for complacency. We can't say, well, God's in charge, so you know, if I run out of gas, I run out of gas. Put gas in the car. That's a small thing, right? But you can't just say God's in charge, therefore do it, quesera, sera, do whatever you want. From a physical perspective, this trouble is a severe persecution. It's a hindrance in their life. From a divine perspective, this trouble is proving the authenticity of the church. But there's also a satanic perspective. Satan is working as well. Now, obviously, he's under God's sovereignty, but Satan is working. This trouble is an attempt to pull people away from the faith. That's what Satan wants, right? Those of, you, those of us who are elect in Christ, God knows who is elect. I'm not sure Satan really knows who's elect. He wants to pull people away. That's what he wanted to do with Job, Remember? Satan, uh, Satan shows up, he's before the presence of God. God says, have you seen Job? He loves me, he praises me, he worships me, he sacrifices to me, and, Job, and, God's, and Satan says to God, you think he worships you for nothing? Look how good his life is. Take some of those things away and then see what happens. And God permits Satan to afflict Job. Satan's intent is to crumble his faith. He even used his wife who said, curse God and die. God's intent is to prove his faith. In the bigger picture, in that case, it was also to give us the scripture and strengthen our faith. But, but there was a, ro- a role there that Satan played. Satan came to introduce pain and affliction in the hope, in the Thessalonian church, he did so in the hope that the people would abandon their faith and abandon their own hope. And that's what Paul wanted to avoid. Look at again at the end of Verse five, the beginning says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. And then he says he did so for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Clearly Satan was tempting them, but he's using tempted in the broader, in in the more specific sense of falling into temptation. Satan would come, he would have his way in the church, and your church would no longer exist. My work there will have been for nothing. It would be in vain. All my time there would have been meaningless. So Paul is aware that the trouble in Thessalonica is because Satan, in response to the activity of God, has ramped up his hatred, he's ramped up his animosity, and his desire is that the church would be extinguished. There would be no testimony for God in that city. The people would either flee the city or abandon their faith. That'd be the better case from Satan's perspective. Paul understood this was a spiritual battle, and so that's why he sent Timothy as God's work as God's coworker 
to protect the church and to prevent them from falling away. Well, just with those three outlines, I hope it's given you a better understanding of both of the passage and of Paul's heart, but also a little better understanding of the situation in Thessalonica. It's so encouraging that the Bible's not just theology lessons, it's, it's real life. People are actually living these things and modeling for us. And so having learned a little bit about the timeline and Timothy, the traveler, and the trouble they were facing, I want to close our time by making it personal, which we always should do when we study the scriptures what are we supposed to take away from this? How does these short verses, this little paragraph, how does it help me in my own journey with Christ? Well, you can have your own applications. You can share them over lunch. You can share them during the week at your family life groups. But I'd like to call your attention to the heart of this missionary team, Paul, Silas, and particularly Timothy. I think we get an amazing example here of what the Christian life should look like. Some important elements to it. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you care about other people following Christ. In the words of Mark Dever, he said, if you say you're following Jesus but are not helping others to know and follow Jesus, then I don't know what you mean when you say, I follow Jesus. Do you get that? If you say you follow Jesus, then your life should be given to help others follow Jesus. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't care about the spiritual lives of others. And that's what compelled Paul to, with the anguish of breaking up the team one more time, we gotta send Timothy because we need to look after this church. And what we see in this passage, particularly in Timothy's example, is a helpful reminder of the ways in which we should be ministering to one another. What were Timothy's goals? He went out, he was God's co-worker, and he had to do the work of investigation, exhortation, and protection or prevention. That's the same work you and I are called to do in the lives of one another. If you want to be a member of this church, but you have no desire to invest your life in other people, or you really would prefer people just stayed out of your life, then you have to find a different church. Because God has called us to live in community with one another. And living in community as a family means there's gonna be these elements, investigation, exhortation, and protection. And when I say investigation, I don't mean we're going to be private detectives spying on people's windows, figuring out who's breaking God's law or not. We're not the spiritual police. Okay, that's not the point. But there is intended to be a a watching over one another, right? You you, you watch each other's lives. When our kids and all the cousins and all all the other kids and friends go to the park, all the parents stand outside and they're watching the kids. When a coach is watching his kids play soccer or baseball, they're watching the game, but the coach is thinking, what am I going to teach at the next practice? You're, you're evaluating. That's not maybe another better word than investigation. It's, it's an evaluation. We should be, in a similar way, looking into one another's lives. We're brothers and sisters. 
And that's very difficult to do when there's no relational connection. But as we, as a church, build these relational connections, we need to get more comfortable with, with those kinds of conversations. Your, your, your best glimpse into my life is not Sunday morning. It's in my home. It's when we're out as a family. And then if I love a brother, there's a, the, I need to get used to asking them questions that help them evaluate their own life. Simple questions like, how are you doing? But pausing to wait for, the, for a real answer. Or more specific questions like, how's your prayer life? How's your devotional life? What, do you, what are you reading right now? How's your marriage? How are your kids? Brother, how's your battle with lust and, or gossip or anger or, or selfishness or, or laziness? Sister, how can I pray for you right now? Those are ways we help one another grow by assessing one another's lives. That's what it is to live in community. And then after we take some time to evaluate people's hearts, there's going to be exhortation and there's going to be protection. All of it is done with the truth of God. That's our goal. We want to take people's minds and remind them about the truth. In Hebrews 10, it's called spurring one another to love and good deeds. That's, that's part of what happens when the people of God come together. It says, don't neglect to meet together. Instead, spur one another on. You don't come just to hear one guy preach. You come, and all the time in between, and the bread, and the coffee, and the classes, this is time to talk and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then that should be happening during the week as well. Like Paul does with the Thessalonians, we can be reminding one another that Christ is coming. We have the victory. We can remind one another there is a reward waiting for us. We can remind one another's husbands that we're called to sacrifice for our churches, for, 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 our, for our wives and our families in the church. We, we can remind one another about the responsibilities we have as Christians and the need we have to depend on him for strength. And we're helping each other face the troubles of life. Some troubles are obvious, some troubles are overt, a sickness, a tragedy, you lose a job, some busy season of life, pray for me. But trouble can also come in the form of the blessings. You get a raise, and now you're tempted to boast rather than depend on the Lord. Everything is going well with your family and your life, and you're tempted to trust in yourself instead of trusting in the Lord. We're called to exhort one another. We're called to protect each other by, to use Ephesians, the language of Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. Again, we're not the police going out here giving tickets, Christian tickets out to people. We're just looking at each other's lives and pushing one another to the truth. The protection is seen in Hebrews 3. It says, as long it is called today, he says, exhort one another every day. If today is today, exhort one another. Why, he said, so that you would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of us face that. And that's our job. That's part of our, our role as members of the body of Christ. We exhort, we protect. That's Christian community. And you don't have to go all the way to Thessalonica to serve and do it. You do it right here in your own church and in your own family. God has designed you to live as part of community. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters. You're surrounded by friends in the Lord. And for the glory of Christ and as part of God's team fighting against the schemes of Satan, 
We need to step into one another's lives. In your own personal life and in our corporate life as a church, that is what will make the difference. You connect with others and they will sharpen you and you will sharpen them. And sometimes people say, yeah, but nobody comes to find me. Nobody's asking me how I'm doing. I think the more biblical response is don't wait for people to come find you. You go find someone. You can be the one like Timothy who steps out and leaves the comfort of whatever your home or your group is and steps out for the eternal well-being of someone else. And in doing that, I believe God will bless those efforts. And he will help you and bless you by forming and strengthening relationships that will last for eternity. And that's what Paul says at the end of verse two. You are our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting. You are, these church, my people are, my glory and my crown. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the examples you give us in your word of men and women who gave themselves to serve the people of God who cared more about your eternal purposes than the things of this world. And we are your servants, your slaves, your ministers. We're working for your mission and we pray you would use us to strengthen and build up one another's lives. Help us evaluate, exhort, protect, prevent sin in one another's lives. Forgive us for the casual independence of our Christianity that says we can do this, we're fine, we don't need anybody else. Help us build into our lives patterns of connections to others. And we pray you would strengthen those connections, many of them in face-to-face prayer, in sharing burdens, in rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And in all this, would your spirit use your truth so we would be more and more molded to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, only you know specifically what types of troubles or temptations or persecutions or allurements we're facing right now, but we all know that at the heart of all of them, it's the same. It's the sin that would pull us away from Christ. Protect us, Father. Lead us not into temptation and use us, Lord, to pull others out of that as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.